Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. Today, my guest on the On Coaching podcast is David Ringwood. David, I'm delighted to have you here. It's a pleasure to have And David is the Head of Assessment and Executive Coaching at Touchstone Executive Assessment. And he's a faculty member at the prestigious IMD in Switzerland. My usual question is that although we can see your LinkedIn page and all the great things lined up there, but will you give us a quick introduction of yourself? I can, Zoltan, and thank you for the invitation to be here. It's a great privilege, and uh, it's it's a it's a particularly important topic. So, I, I guess I've had a journey in my career. I started in investment banking, um, was uh, with uh, J.P. Morgan in London back in the days um, when you know derivatives were a big thing, and it's very interesting because what you get is the complexity of all of that. But I think what was missing, and it's going to show up in our conversation today, is that motivation draws us towards certain environments and certain people and certain types of roles. And there was something in that investment banking environment that really didn't work for me. I liked the intellectual intrigue of it and the financial reward was great. But gravity pulls us different places, does it not? And there was something about the doing things in service of others that was not there. And sooner or later, that compelled me to go Uh, back to university to do lots of different master's and uh, research degrees. And it drew me into the world of psychometrics. So I have spent most of my professional career uh, in the world of psychometrics, uh, predominantly with a company called Management Research Group, who are a firm of psychometricians and one of the best in the world. I spent 17 years there. I retired quite recently from there to focus on my own consulting practice, which is Touchstone Executive Assessment. And um, I do have the faculty role at IMD as well. Um, And it just means that in a way that I think most people would want to, it helps to align what we're doing professionally with what we find personally rewarding and satisfying and gives us a sense of fulfillment and achievement. And, you know, you can't put a dollar value on that. Thank you. And I I was not aware of this, but there is a, a, a strong parallel between how our careers have started. Of course, mine was a a shorter one, but I started in a in a PR agency. That was my very first place to work for. And as a psychologist, I loved to work there. But after a while, I started to miss that kind of human touch. And now I'm not talking bad about my bosses or colleagues, but that, that personal focus in my work that drew me back to university and then to develop my coaching practice. So I, I'm glad to see that there is a personal parallel between how we started. And if I may ask... How come that it was it was psychometrics that drew you? Was it because of your background? So was it something around the magic of the numbers? So was it the it's good enough to talk about people, but it's it's a safe space or it's a safe distance from them? So how come the psychometrics? I, I think there's a parallel here actually with a lot of people, not just you and I. I think most people navigate, they don't necessarily know immediately what's right for them. And part of the journey in life is learning, is it not? Uh, so for me, I did enjoy the intellectual complexity of investment banking. Um, and I wanted to continue that. So psychometrics certainly has a great deal of complexity, not simply because of the tools and the statistical rigor of the tools, but also the fact that you're measuring people and people in themselves are complex and societal systems are complex. But there was that, um, it was a place where I could get that, but also that sense of community. You know, uh, this is a place where people gather. This is a place where people seek support and guidance and where they can be helped. And there are many environments where you get that convergence of the complexity and the community, and to some extent, the commerciality as well. I mean, clinical psychology, you can get all of the community and the the complexity, but 
you know, I, I've got a commercial side to me as well. So like most people, you're trying to find that optimal place where I feel most authentic to who I am, where I'm doing more of what I want to do than what I don't want to do. And where just instinctively, it feels like the right direction of travel on a longer term basis. It's not only authentic, it's sustainable over time. And this is why I was with Management Research Group for 17 years. I've never been anywhere for 17 years except my marriage. Well, that, that's a feat in both of the fields of our lives. So we, we just celebrated our 18th anniversary with my wife. So there is another parallel here. So I'm like, wow. And before we move on, let me ask a kind of a secret question. Feel free not to answer. So do investment banks use psychometrics about for assessing their clients or investment opportunities? So is the numbers just are the numbers just about the business or are there numbers about the people as well? They would use psychometrics for their own internal processes such as development succession planning high potential uh identification they would use it for selection when they're hiring people into the organization you you would not use psychometrics for anything related to their actual clients um and don't forget a lot of what they do uh with the exception of people on the kind of the sell side uh are uh, there's a lot of trading activity which is transactional and it's product driven uh be it equities or bonds or uh, derivatives and that has nothing to do with psychometrics some of the mathematics are not that different i have to say so they're actually in fact at some level are parallels uh, uh from the computational aspects of investment banking to those of psychometrics um investment banking slightly more mathematical uh, psychometrics slightly more statistical but there are overlaps certainly Oh, that could be then a, a line of future business for us. And uh, why I brought this up is that in a previous conversation that we had, we brought up the idea of generational differences. And that's where I started to think about, so how come the financial institutions who I guess have uh, funds and resources to provide their clients to create even better businesses for them and for themselves, how come that they are not using such tools? But let's not stay that way because why I would like, why I've invited you was to talk about generational differences because I'm aware of your work around this area and I'm a fan of all the results. So I would like to focus on this if that's okay for you. I've seen a lot of things around generational differences. Some of them name it a fad. Some of them seem to underpin their claims with serious data and research and before going there i would like to ask why is it important why do you think that generational differences are important i gotta tell you i think that's a very reasonable question um and it the answer to it is why there is so much research and why there is so much speculation and and to your point a lot of it does become anecdotal uh, quite quickly so why are generational differences important why does this topic matter to begin with I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, uh, firstly, I think it's important to understand that people, broadly speaking, stepping away from generational differences, people are very unique. People are very different. And when we begin to look at the topic of generational differences or gender differences or cultural differences, Let's recognize that people are not better than each other. They're not worse than each other. They are different to each other. And let's lean into that. Let's enjoy that. Let's embrace that. And if we adopt that mindset, then I think we approach the subject of generational differences quite differently because we don't treat it as a problem. We treat it as an area to be curious about, to learn more about, to understand at a more deep and more practical level. And the truth is that newer generations, and I will define what that means uh, going forward, there are more of them coming into organizations. Over time, the proportions of them will increase. And the ratio between the previous generations and the newer generations will significantly shift um, relatively soon. So it matters if organizations want higher levels of performance, then they need what motivates, they need to understand what motivates people to act. They need to understand how to retain because retention is a core currency 
in organizational narrative, is it not? They need to drive performance through people, people being their single biggest asset. They need to understand how to um, keep people engaged, organizational engagement. Uh, they need to know how to become an employer of choice, the attractive brand. People like to work for this organization. They have a heck of a good reputation because they take the time to get to know what makes people tick, what matters to people. I, All of these things are fundamental. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm, I'm glad that you started with the everyone is different approach. But if I'm taking up my devil's advocate show, then wouldn't it mean that we should be pushing towards the coaching style of leadership and train everyone who gets into an, an employee-facing role to treat people individually? And shouldn't we just show out all the research and all the effort around generations? So sh shouldn't we just focus on the everyone is different kind of thing? I think you can take that very literally. A strong statement, yes. I, I think it's a very reasonable approach. And, I, and I, I think, you know, that question has to be asked. And I think you're right to ask it. And I go by what I said. I mean, people are unique. People are different. The question then is, is that necessarily scalable? If I'm an organization and I have, let's say, 8,000 people, is it realistic to treat every individual as an individual and to calibrate the way I lead and manage and engage with people at that individual level. I think that's a rhetorical question. We all know the answer to that. So where the research sits and the value that research adds is that when you do look at larger populations, what are the common themes that just keep showing up? Whether we're looking at gender differences or cultural differences or generational differences, there are broader patterns that on an empirical basis. So this is not a matter of opinion. It's not something subjective. This is a matter of fact. These are psychometric measures of living, breathing people in organizations. And when you look at a larger data set, what are, the, what are those key differences that just keep showing up? So that you don't have to go right down to that individual level. You can make broader assumptions, recognizing there is always going to be you know, a frequency distribution statistically or a degree of variety within any population. But it does allow organizations to begin to plan for uh, ways of engaging and communicating and supporting people. It does help previous generations to perhaps understand where other uh, generations are coming from and what matters to them, even if it doesn't necessarily matter to us. One of the things that psychometrics typically do not measure and it's core to your questions, Zoltan, is it does not measure people's expectations of us. Uh -huh. And the expectations of newer generations are not the same as previous generations. What good looks like in the mind, in the heart, in the view of younger generations is different, not better, not worse. Time magazine in May 2013 described millennials, for example, as lazy, entitled narcissists who live with their parents. Way to be judgmental. So it goes back to why does this matter? The more organizations can understand what these differences are and understand factually and empirically, not subjectively or not a line of sight thing. We only see what's in our immediate kind of locus of control, but based on independent, scientifically validated, independently peer-reviewed research, which is what I've done with IMD, that helps to inform some critically important strategic decisions for organizations. And then they have a basis upon which to make those decisions in service of the organizational agenda, but also in service of the needs of all of the generations. Thank you very much for saying that. I'm, I tend to hear the extremes when dealing with generations. Some people really believe in the overpowering, you know, pop, so the overpower of research that would say that, okay, this is what generation X, Y, Z would look like. Full stop. Let's accept them that they are this and treat them this way. And other, other people in my network, they talk about the individual, let's say. And what I loved in, in what you've been saying and how you've been saying it is that we have to find the place of the research where we can take a look at 
these groups of individuals. And certain findings will be true for all of them, but we shouldn't let the glasses of individuality go away. And we have to somehow use both of them together to be able to treat people the best way for them and for us. And as a coach and as a leadership thinker, I think that's what I would like to wish for everyone. And what really caught my attention is that you started to talk about expectations. And yes, they are really not measured. So will you go there for a bit? Because I would love to hear about outcomes and research that you've been doing in this field. Well, expectations are such an important thing because you know as well as I do, people measure our performance or people measure our effectiveness relative to their expectations. And expectations is not a a static thing. Expectations change. As we get older, as we become more senior in the organization, people perhaps expect more gravitas or they expect a more strategic and a less tactical focus. You know, the, the direction of travel shifts, expectations change, expectations compete. You please one constituent, you irritate the other managing multiple stakeholders. So this is an area where it's important to really stop and understand as part of a more sophisticated approach uh, to leadership. What I will say before uh, I, I, I talk a little bit more about expectations is I, I think we have to be careful about categorization too much because I'm going to go, I'm going with the devil's advocate part of you, Zoltan, which is um I think there is a risk of overgeneralizing and arguably stereotyping. And I'm not a fan of stereotyping. Um, But there are research insights which can help us to understand some of the fundamental differences between generations when you look at bigger populations. And they're very real and they're very significant in their implications. The second thing I will mention is that even the concepts of generation, frankly, are a little bit arbitrary. Someone chose to decide that you know, uh, Generation X, for example, sits somewhere between 1965 and 1976. Where is that written? You know, Generation Z, 1977 to 1990. And depending on who you ask, those, those boundaries will change. People don't suddenly change from being Gen X to Gen Y. Yes. You know, let me let me interrupt you here for a second. Couldn't we use the psychometric data? whatever profiles we are using to define generations and to get a better insight on on, on the time scales or the time frames where that we should be naming as the yeah. earth areas of generations. So so couldn't we change the line of the, the direction of thinking? Uh, we could, and actually we have. Um, one of the things that Management Research Group did um, was to look at this really from an age point of view, not a generational point of view, because the generation is categorical. Uh, age is more of the continuum. Um, you know, it's less kind of discrete in, in that sense. And how do things evolve as the as the age curve changes? Uh, I'm not going to go into that, but but yes, you can do that. You can cut the data, but the thing is you've got to have the data. And uh, the data is there and it can be investigated in any way you want. It's the old cliche in statistics. If you interrogate data long enough, it will eventually tell the truth. I, I love that analogy. Poor data being chained to our computers. Uh, but yes, you are right. And thank you for saying that. I think that would be a, a very interesting line of research. And just to put another intellectual balloon here, I would be very interested in in interrogating this data about the different learning or change curves of people coming from different generations or people coming from different eras, are there roots of ways of development different from each other? There certainly are. And to kind of revisit your question about expectations, I think when we talk about expectations, I think it's important to be reasonably specific rather than take a very general view of expectations. I think people understand that people are likely to agree that expectations for people can be very varied and that it's part of the filter through which we evaluate situations and people. But what does that mean in fact? If we were to operationalize this, so leaders living and breathing in organizations or people coaching leaders, how can we employ this helpfully in, in our practice? And this is where specificity helps. So, for example, what are 
the changing expectations generations around left different levels of support and what does support look like for them? What does it mean for their expectations about information? What does it take to keep a Gen X or a Gen Y informed in a way that may be different than uh, you know, a boomer? But do they, what are their expectations in terms of career progression? Um, what are their expectations in terms of levels of risk, their risk appetite? Because the research indicates that all of these are core areas where there are fundamental differences. And once we understand that, if I'm, for example, a Gen X and I am, it helps me to do two things, Altan, to your question about expectations. It helps me to develop a greater sense of awareness because now I'm no longer relying on my own assumptions, my own biases, my own expectations, my own mindsets. In fact, I'm beginning to recognize them a little bit more. And self-observation is a great skill, not only in leadership, but in life, is it not? It also helps me to be much more aware and observant of my environment, my ability to read the room, my ability to observe other people in an objective way, in a complete way, now is significantly enhanced as a consequence. And on that basis, I tend to now begin to make better behavioral choices, but now they're choices, they're intentional, they're cognizant, they're purposeful, they act in service of particular outcomes, because now I can understand where people may be a little bit different. I judge them less as a consequence because that descriptive characteristic begins to play out a little bit. They're not better than me. They're not worse than me. They're different to me. And that's not necessarily the way I might approach it, or that is not my natural preference, but I can begin to understand and respect and appreciate the fact that these people may value something different. And what you'll notice in that Zoltan is that that gets us a little bit closer to values-based leadership, respect, appreciation, mutual understanding. Again, you can't put a dollar value on that, but it matters a great deal. There are so many questions that you have asked, so I would just simply continue with, okay, and will you answer those beautiful questions, David? But before going there, because all of them were interested, there is one thing that keeps bugging me, and you, we are talking about expectations and uh, reading the room and coaching and helping other people. My question is behaviors, because... Mm. How do these expectations, according to your knowledge and your research, how do these translate to behaviors? Because I can really expect people to, or I can imagine people to act very differently based on the same needs. How does the needs and motivation-focused research help us in navigating different behaviors? I think it's probably best if I give you a specific example rather than just talk conceptually with things like that. So, for example, one of the psychometric measures, and here what you'll notice, Zoltan, is I'm creating the link between the motivational dynamics of an individual, which is what the research measures, and the consequent behavioral implications or the likely behavioral implications. For example, let's just say for argument's sake that I am someone who do, does not need a great deal of validation or approval or recognition from other people. I'll take a compliment, but I'll take it anyway. It doesn't have a great motivational consequence. I'm not an approval seeker, if you like. So if we were to measure psychometrically, I would score relatively low on the consequence scale. The risk of that, and it's only a risk, is a category of bias known as an estimation error. That is, I might underestimate other people's need for validation. It may not, in fact, occur to me. Or I walk in the room with assumptions, which is assumption bias. I assume that recognition and validation really doesn't matter to people. That's a huge assumption to make. Whereas other people, now as I begin to read the room, if I understand that about myself, I'm beginning to understand that when I say things to people and they may be higher than me, and that a degree of validation and appreciation and recognition really matters to them, I'm beginning to now understand that the message that I'm sending, it increases the likelihood that they're taking them personally. They think I'm talking about them, not just them in their role. And the fact that it will hit them hard and it will cut them deep and the effects will last a great deal of time. Would I intentionally want to hurt people and be insensitive? No. But if I'm not reading the room, then I may in fact be doing that. Not intentionally, but the effect is the same for those people. So, 
the awareness piece and the link between the motivation and the behavior is that the more cognizant I am, the more observant I am of myself and of other people, it helps me to not only understand, but operationalize. I can now begin to alter the way that I communicate. For example, in classical uh, psychology, the, the, the approach would be validate first. I like the way you did that. I thought that was a great idea. Can I, can I make a couple of suggestions? Permission seeking. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you're asking to be invited in and, you know, permission to kind of add a few of your own thoughts. And it doesn't feel like criticism. It may well be. And I may be saying, listen, that's that's terrible. That really, I'm not sure, sure about all mm-hmm. of that. But am I leading with that? No, I'm not. I'm being much more. I make one final point, Zoltan, which is understanding the motivational DNA is actually really, really important because if I, for example, have natural motivational orientations, for example, I enjoy helping people. I get a sense of personal fulfillment out of doing things in service of other people's needs and it brings that emotional responsibility. It makes certain behaviors much easier to access, i.e. empathetic behaviors, compassionate behaviors. It makes it hard for me to not do that. And if I don't have that characteristic, I then have to go and find energy to go and engage in supportive and empathetic behaviors. I can do it. That's behavior. I can do it really well, but it's going to drain a lot of my energy. So gravity will pull me naturally towards certain sets of behaviors and make those behaviors really to access and hard to resist. And it will make other behaviors a lot less attractive to me, but Sometimes we got to do things we don't want to do because there's a bigger picture in order to be successful. You kind of have to, or the rules of the game in this organizations require me to, you know, the way it works. And now I'm cutting my own trade because I am super interested in hearing the generational differences, but you just said a word that raises one more question for me. You said uh, motivational DNA, DNA, which implies something that we are born with or that's what DNA implies for me and we started the whole conversation around generational differences and for me that is that more speaks about environmental effects and I know that this is the no one can finally answer it question of psychology nature or nurture environmental DNA whatever but yeah what what does your research say about this, about the importance of nature or nurture. So how big are the differences or how big are the changes that you can see on these motivational pictures as people are developing? Is there any insight over there that we could, you know, drop into the big part of answering the final question? I think I can tell you what I know because I do get the question quite a lot. Is this nature or is this nurture? Oh, I thought I would be very unique with this question. Then. Yes, no, no. Every every time, Zoltan, is it nature, is it nurture? And the answer is yes. You know? Um, <laughs> the truth is it's very hard to know and to quantify and to assign a ratio between which is which. What I can tell you is this, is that these motivational differences, uh, they tend to originate, or rather I say the motivational characteristics, tend to originate in the formative years. So, for example, the first 10 to 12 years of life, can be really instrumental in shaping these characteristics. I mean, they're not arbitrary. There are reasons why people are pointed motivationally in different directions. And some of it would be personality, but the parental influence, the size of the family, the societal context, those and many other considerations tend to certainly influence and fundamentally shape the core individual in those critical formative years. But they do evolve over time. So I'm not saying that this is fixed. You know, what we find rewarding in our 40s and 50s compared to our 20s, in all likelihood, there's going to be some differences. Life teaches us, does it not? We know things now we didn't know back then, if only we did. Um, Our emotional equipment is different as we grow older. We've experienced the world. We see things differently. Um, So they do tend to change over time and evolve. But this is where we can no longer rely on assumption. Uh, This is where the psychometric measurement can actually help. And frankly, even if my scores all the time were mathematically identical to yours, it doesn't mean we're the same people because we come from different backgrounds. Our families are different. Our cultures are different. Our journey in life has been different. That has to play out in the way it shows up in our world and how it affects our emotions. 
So it's not <clears throat> DNA in the literal sense, but there is something intrinsic about it. There is something which is very different than behaviors because behaviors we can choose. I can be formal. I can be serious. I can pay attention to detail. I can be very agile. We get to make the call. We can move the needle based on circumstance. You don't get to change the needle when it comes to the motivational DNA. It's not something we actively choose. So the skill is to understand it. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, with all my needs for being unique, I had to ask that question. <laughs> and I think that's in my motivational DNA to be unique somehow. Thank you very much for that. And as we are talking about the instruments and as we are getting closer to the answers, will you tell me a few words about the instruments that you were using or the background? And then I would just love to hear about the findings that you that you had around generational differences. Uh, absolutely. And without going into any technical detail about the tools, I think with any psychometric instrument, I think it's important to understand what you're measuring and not measuring. So with this particular tool, we're measuring what an individual finds emotionally rewarding and fulfilling, which is the essence of motivation. It's not measuring what people are doing. That's behavior. The fact that you do something doesn't necessarily mean that you enjoy it. The fact that you enjoy something doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it. Not the same thing. One of the key critical things also about what this instrument measures from an organizational point of view and from a coach point of view is we're measuring characteristics you can't observe. You can only observe people's behavior and how much of our behavior is all time is us and how much reflects the way we all adapt to suit our environment or people's expectations or the rules of the game or in order to be successful, you kind of have to. You'll never know. Toss a coin. Tossing a coin actually has a higher predictive value than behavior measures. At least with tossing a coin, you get a 0.5 coefficient. That's not just a bad statistician's joke. It is anyway, but it is literally true. So it really matters because you're getting to know things about people, be it in selection, be it in coaching, be it in high potential programs that otherwise you could not observe about them. It's also not measuring what people are good or bad at, which is really avoiding that whole evaluative conversation. So a high score doesn't mean it's a strength, a low score doesn't mean that it's a weakness or vice versa. It's descriptive. What do you find emotionally rewarding? And if it's a higher score or an instrument such as this, it means that this is an individual who would particularly enjoy leaning into that particular area. For example, helping people or satisfaction from being positively perceived by other people or satisfaction from doing things that are new and different and less tried and less tested, the whole creative agenda and such like. The individual directions inventory is the name of the instrument. It's developed by a company called Management Research Group who are one of the real expert firm of psychometricians globally. They're based out in Portland and Maine. Um, and I speak objectively, I worked with them for 17 years until quite recently, but I don't work with them anymore. I do some work for them. So I can be objective in saying that of all of the instrument I use in my consulting practice, in my assessment practice, I'm pretty clear about where best in class is. And this is one of them. And it's also one of the expert coaching tools at IMD Business School in Switzerland, which as you mentioned earlier, is one of the most prestigious, one of the most accomplished. And they're pretty discerning about the psychometrics that they use, as you can well imagine. Yes. Thank you very much. And the, there were so many questions that you have just uh, put into a conversation previously. What are the differences around you know, achievement, relatedness? Lots of questions you have raised. And, and my curiosity is around, is around your focus. So in your coaching practice and in, in your practice as a teacher for future leaders, what motivational differences did you find to be the most diverse amongst generations? And which one of those seem to be the most important for organizational success or coachability? I could have lots of questions. So I'm just interested in, in your personal favorites. Let's let's say it this way. What, are, what generational differences are your personal favorites? Okay. So I'm going to answer your question in two ways, Zoltan. Um, first is I'm going to talk about uh, Gen Y, which is millennials, which is... You know, arguably, as we said, it's a bit arbitrary, but kind of late 70s up to arguably the kind of start of the 90s or thereabouts. 
And what are the differences there? The research question we then asked, which I will get to, is that the differences we then observe in Generation Z are the changes that we observed in Generation Y continued in Generation Z, which would imply that these changes are actually quite fundamental, that this is a quite a significant shift in the direction of travel. It's not a one-off. It's not just an arbitrary or random change in Generation Y, but that when Generation Z comes along, if those changes continue, and in fact, if they accelerate, it does suggest that there's something really moving here. And again, empirically, that's an important research question. So I'll start with Generation Y millennials, uh, arguably late 70s up to early 90s or thereabout. They're fascinating differences, Olten. They really, really are. Um, now, I have to be a bit careful. I'm not going to go into the numbers around all of this because in this format, it's not that exciting. But this is always a question of extent, not fact. Mm -hmm. So I want to avoid the perception that I'm describing things in a very categorical or absolute way. There are degrees of change going on, and I will do my best to our, bring some finesse to those uh, descriptions. And I will talk slightly more thematically rather than go into individual psychometric measures. I think that's too granular. So broadly speaking, part of the difference we observed in Generation uh, Y, the millennials. Well, the first thing is that we see a significant change in their informational needs. In a coaching question, we would ask the question around what does it take for any individual to feel informed on their terms? Now, if you ask people that, they look at you with a slight look of curiosity in the, on their face and they say, I don't know, I just need to know stuff. Yes. We can be specific. We can be specific. I mean, the, the, the needs that we identify are, number one is a non-specific need. Keep me informed. Keep me in the loop. I like to know what's going on. I like to know that I know if you know what I mean, which indicates that it's a metacognitive need. Mm -hmm. These people find that general update, that flow of information, not only informative, they find it reassuring. They worry. That's one of the big differences as we begin to see millennials come along. Uh, some people like granular detail, the how-to. Now, this is a specific informational need. How do you do that? What does that look like? Don't be conceptual. Be tangible. Be concrete. Be specific. Another significant differences. And increasingly, they like all of that information, but they like it well in advance. They like to see things coming. The whole last minute, just in time thing really doesn't work with millennials, generally speaking. Now, of course, let's acknowledge there is huge variety within that. And people may say, well, my son is a Gen Y and that doesn't sound like him. Sure, it probably, it probably doesn't. But across a population, these are big differences. And these meet a statistical criteria for being statistically significantly different. That's an objective measure. I know that we could have a very long conversation if we reflected in, on all the pieces that you are going to share. But as I was listening to what you were saying, the word that came to my mind was anxiety. You, you just highlighted reassurance and, you know, and predictability of, of being informed. Yeah. That's, that, that's the thing that came to my mind. So can, of course, we are not going to say that Gen Y has a higher level of anxiety because that would need measuring. This is what we are talking about. But, the, but that's my impression that the, yeah, and my line of thought would be around, okay, has the environment got more turbulent these days or in, or in those days that would throw us into the psychological position of needing more reassurance and needing more safety? And that safety yes. needs translating to anxiety. Big words from my side as well. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. And, and it does kind of raise one of the fundamental questions here. Uh, and it does also give me a very nice segue into the second theme. So the first theme is informational needs. They're different and they're higher. What it takes to keep these people informed is different. It's more significant than previous generations. And the risk of previous generations is that they may not understand. This may feel slightly higher maintenance, if you know what I mean. The second thing, and actually to your point, is... They're more cautious. They value more predictability. They value more specificity. So the second theme is themes of caution. And for that reason, and to your exact point, 
creating psychological safety becomes an increasingly important organizational currency. And we can coach to that, we can train for that, we can teach that. There's programs that I did, for example, around you know resilience building, part of which is understanding where we're vulnerable, understanding how to self-regulate more effectively. And as leaders, we can lead by example. Can we not? As coaches, we can counsel people in, in that place. Uh, we've got to be careful about anything which may imply that it necessarily means that they experience more anxiety. If they're not getting what they need, they may well feel more anxious than previous generations in a way that the previous generations may not fully understand. Uh, we're also not measuring anything which is of a clinical or pathological nature here. All of these instruments correctly assume normal personality. So people, again, shouldn't get the wrong idea. This doesn't mean that you have an anxiety disorder uh, or, or such like. It just means that if they don't feel connected or in the loop, they're likely to kind of feel a bit anxious. I'll tell you what, turn the Wi-Fi off on a 15-year-old and watch what happens. They go well, nuts. You do it, you, you do it with me, and I'm 42. I, I get yeah. anxious as well. So yeah. usually what one of the first things I do after you know getting people know or after getting to know people in a room is I usually check if my connection is there. Yeah. Just to make sure that I can safely exit the situation if something goes wrong. So, so again, it, it totally goes to good. something. Before I go on to the third kind of overarching theme, I do want to get to what was implied by your previous question, which is causality. We don't actually measure causality. Why these differences are here is, is, is a, a, an area for reasonable debate. We could conjecture that this is arguably, and I'm not suggesting this because this, this can become politicized very, very quickly, is that this is possibly indicative of more recent parenting styles. It could be indicative of the influence of technology, the always-on environment. I mean, I grew up in an environment, showing my age a little bit here, where there were no mobile phones, where there were, we had a, a TV with no remote control. You had to physically get up and press the button. There was no internet. You had to, if you want to call someone, either have a, a landline at home or find a phone box down the road. The world we live in now is fundamentally different and I've grown up, and I suspect you've grown up where you've had that migration, you've seen the difference. Newer generations have grown up knowing nothing else. And is this possibly one of the factors, and possibly substantially so, that has given rise to these differences? Because it would make sense. Now, I, don't, I can't empirically prove that because we don't measure the causality. We measure the effect size, the outcome measure. But it's a very reasonable uh, area for conjecture, is it not? Thank you. And thank you, Rich, again, for, for being very precise on what the measurements instrument, what the measurement instruments are telling us. Because that's, you know, as a this could be a side conversation, one of the things that I'm experiencing when in discussion with with leaders or professionals is that we tend to overthink the messages of these instruments. And some people tend to see a lot more into the numbers than what they are really telling us. And uh, that's where the boundaries start to get gray on how and what to use for, and, and yeah, on how to use these measure, measurement instruments. So there's one final kind of theme I'll get to. So the themes we've seen so far are the themes of uh, informational needs, uh, the themes of kind of caution, uh, they are more cautious, they're more risk adverse, they value more predictability, they don't like surprises. Uh, so the final two things I'll indicate is one is another theme and the other is an area for potential conflict. Now, people think motivation is all good. Isn't this what you find personally rewarding and fulfilling and it gives you a sense of energy? Sure it does. What if it conflicts with itself? What if within ourselves we have drivers which don't always dance very well, as we say. It's mm -hmm. quite normal. It's why it's such an expert coaching tool. It, 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 it explains often why we have mixed feelings about things or we feel pulled in different directions at the same time. People are complex and these empirical insights really help. So the, the larger kind of, the final larger theme is one around achievement, is that they have much higher expectations around achievement, which brings often a greater sense of immediacy and I think you and I have both heard organizations saying that these people expect to go up the ladder much more quickly than before. 
And that's what often gives that sense or the perception of a sense of entitlement, because I come from a generation where you earn the right. You don't assume the right. And concurrently with that, they have far higher expectations of support from other people in achieving all of that. Whereas I had to stand on my own two feet, which again reinforces this perception, which I, I wouldn't go as far as to say lazy entitled narcissist. I mean, that was a little bit strong, but you could understand why someone who came from a different journey and is looking at people who have this mindset would interpret it in that way. But that's a judgmental perspective. They're only different. They grew up in a world that's different to us. Let's stop and understand that a little bit because it's too easy a target, is it not? The conflict, perhaps tension is a better word than conflict, but let's not get into the semantics of that. Yeah, tension, you know, and it's not unusual for people, so there's nothing problematic about this, but it, it does create a legitimate challenge, and it creates a great coaching opportunity as well. Yeah. Is the, the co-occurrence of a desire to achieve with a desire to achieve a degree of predictability which is what we see both of at the same time in Gen Y. Now, that most definitely is internally a mixed feeling. I want success, but I want success for the least risk possible because that always works out. Mm -hmm. uh, if I reach out for bigger and better and more and the mindset bias associated with that is what's known as the never good enough mentality, it can dismiss achievement very quickly. I get there, yeah, yeah, now what? Now I want this and I get there, now I want that. Never good enough. That's the parents. Mm -hmm. So if I reach into that and I reach out for bigger and better and more and I push hard to achieve, that that side of me that values predictability will say, hold on a second there, you know, cool it down, stick to what you know, don't take risk, leave it alone. If I leave it alone and don't take risk, that's not good enough. I want more than this, the never good enough mentality. Will I, won't I? So now with the significant desire for achievement, comes an elevated fear of failure. That's difficult. And that's why organizations really need to understand some of these people. Coaches often really benefit from some of these insights because you're really getting under the skin and we're looking at things which otherwise you could never observe. And often, frankly, the individual may not have themselves have quite put their finger on it. That explains a great deal to me. This is why I keep worrying about these things. This is why I can't make a decision because I do that will I, won't I decision-making dynamic. That explains why I certain I, I think of things in certain ways. The whole cognitive, emotional, behavioral dynamic lives and breathes in the space, does it not? Absolutely. Thank, thank you very much. And, and I know that looking at data would be easier here. So I'm just interested in your, in your impression. So we're talking about the difference between Gen X and Gen Y. So, and there were these key themes. So what is the magnitude in the differences? Should I be walking on eggshells when I'm informing these people? Or is it just the, okay, you need a bit of more, you know, support and a bit more of smiles and whatever. So what is the magnitude of difference between the generations? So, so the biggest areas of difference without going into the actual metrics and percentile values um, are around their need for predictability is much more elevated. So it's a step change than previous generations and their need for structure and process and granular detail. Similarly, both of these are associated also with the theme of caution. Don't just do it, do it right, do it well, do it this way. And don't do that last minute thing. I want to see things coming. Those are the bigger differences. The desire to achieve, it is a significant gap. It's less than the other two, but it's an interesting change in direction of travel. But it does lean us into the next question, of course, which is, okay, so gener Generation Z now come along. Yeah, that would have been my next question. So, you know, how does the picture look for them in, yeah. in comparison with... Gen Y. So this goes us back to this brings us back to the original kind of question about the research question that is, which is let's look at how millennials, Generation Y, are different than previous generations. Let's understand that first. Then let's look at Gen Z, and are the changes we observe in Gen Z consistent with the changes we've begun to observe with Gen Y? And if that is the case, that tells us a completely different story, or we're 
millennial is just a one-off and we can expect something a bit more arbitrary, more random. In every single case, without going into the measures, the changes we saw in Gen Y continue with Gen Z and in many cases accelerate significantly. Mm-hmm. For example, that keep me in the loop. I like to know what's going on. I like to know that I know. The gap between, for example, boomers, Gen X and Gen Y, Gen Y were a, a little bit higher in this one. <clears throat> the gap between Gen Y and Gen Z in that area is more than twice what it had been in that previous generation, and it's increasing. So it continues to increase, but it's accelerating. So Gen Z, that whole keep me in the loop thing now becomes a core currency. Organizations need to understand, and coaches really need to understand that that need to know, that constant update, keep me in the loop. I like to know what's going on. It's a non-specific informational need. Here's the thing, Zoltan. If I scored low on this relevant dimension, you know the constant update, people copy me on emails or they BCC me or they include me in that committee. <laughs> For me, that's that's noise. Why yes. would people want that? What is the matter with them? There's nothing the matter with them. There's nothing wrong with them. They're different to me. So this is part of the awareness skill and the less judgmental approach, which is that nothing's going to change for me. You know, I still won't enjoy all this stuff. It will still feel like noise to me, but I'm beginning to appreciate the fact that for other people, it really helps to make them feel included and reassured and involved it doesn't take a great deal of my, if I'm time, if I'm truthful. And would I intentionally want to make people feel anxious? No, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So that's one big one. A big difference we hadn't seen before is the need for inclusion. It, it does go towards a broader theme of interpersonal sensitivity. People are very sensitive in different ways and all of us are unique. And remember, none of this is observable. So we can't expect people to know these things about us. Mm-hmm. So Gen Z are very sensitive to feeling unsupported and they will feel uns- much more unsupported much more quickly than the next person because the bar is beginner higher to begin with. With Generation Z, their sensitivity support is higher and they will feel unsupported much more quickly than the next person because that bar is higher to begin with. Generation Z are much more sensitive to feeling excluded. They value a sense of togetherness and community. Now you'll notice there's a big difference between feeling unsupported and feeling excluded. We can be specific. If I says so I'm, I'm listening to all these motivational thoughts, then of course we are not talking about consequences and mm-hmm. I can see stronger communities being created because if There are a lot of people out there who share the need for being recognized as individuals and who share the need of support, who share the need of of connectedness and continuous updates, then for me, the logical next step would be the formation of either loosely knit but very active networks between people or some very close networks of people who are really moving around. And uh, I mean, who are really moving around together. So I, I can imagine that the next generation workplaces will be a lot more community-based, a, lo- a lot more interactive. And, uh, and and that feels good for me. Well, at, at some point in the future, Zoltan, on a different podcast, we should probably talk about the effects of remote working and COVID and all of that, because these differences are deep and intrinsic and then along comes COVID and the whole technology world of Zoom and MS Teams and all this kind of stuff. And what has that done? That's a whole different conversation. I'm not going to go there today, but I will continue. So there are more sensitivities. Um, Gen Z also may feel less comfortable opening up. You know, there's introversion or extroversion occur at different levels. And some people, it's more introversion at the level of disclosure. They may prefer to be more specific in what they share, with whom they share, to what extent, under what circumstances, in what formats. They value a degree of privacy, but they're also motivated to do things for the sake of appearance. Now, I kind of wonder, and again, this is the causality thing, which we don't measure. 
is this effect of things like Facebook or Instagram, where people want to present a certain face to the world that they live in, but it's all for show? Does it really mean anything? Are they increasingly cautious about being truthful and being open about the realities of the world, which may be less glamorous? I don't know all of this, but there's probably a couple of doctoral theses in here that people who want to take this research and run with it. The other big differences and the continuity of, of the direction of travel with Gen Y to Gen Z. Gen Z, of course, is those born from the kind of early 90s onwards. So they will now be in the workforce. The expectations around achievement, uh, double. Wow. It's almost as high as, I mean, if I was to go to the psychometrics, the median score on the psychometric scale is at the 80th percentile, which means being a median, 50% or above that. You're at the top end of the scale. Their desire to achieve, their expectations around success and immediacy of success. There's a natural sense of urgency around all of this. And the extent to which they value support from other people triples, if I was to try and quantify it. So we would need it different means scales. <laughs> we may sooner or later need a slightly different uh, uh, magnitude of scales, absolutely. But, you know, some people value standing on their own two feet and they like to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. Newer generations go to the other end of that scale. Now, that doesn't make them needy. I want to be clear about this. This is not a weakness or a vulnerability or a judgment of them. They are simply receptive to the support of other people. Support from other people does not constitute a form of interference or control for these people, but they may feel less comfortable in roles or environments where they have to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. So the expectation around success is more elevated. Their expectations around support getting there from other people are equally, if not even more, elevated, which possibly, and maybe coincidentally, further feeds this perception that this is a sense of entitlement. I don't believe it is. But it can come across for, to that way to people who are different. The need for predictability uh, is, again, higher. Now, it's slightly more incremental, but it, it was high to begin with. But it does the direction of travel. Every single one of the changes we saw in Gen Y either increase or increase substantially in Generation Z, which means this is not random. This is the direction of travel. This is probably how things are going to change. The caveat I have around this is that this is where people are today. Mm -hmm. These are people with Gen Z who are probably now in their early 20s. I don't know what they'll look like in 10 years or 20 years. I'm trained to not make assumptions. So let's not assume that this is the cards we've been dealt, this is the way it is. Let's not adopt a fatalistic view that this is the way things will always be. We don't know. We don't know what these people will look like and how the motivational dynamics may evolve over the next 10 to 12 years. We don't know what's going to happen in the world, but something has happened in the world. And the final point I would make is this. If we look from a research perspective at boomers and Gen X, which arguably is kind of the mid-40s right up to in the mid-70s. The differences between those generations are not that significant at the median level, which is interesting when you consider everything that changed in the world since the post-war years. Societal change, cultural change, technology change, uh, globalization, I mean, travel. The, the world changed fundamentally up to the mid-70s, and yet the motivational dynamics tended not to have a big shift. They're almost, I mean, the differences are close to zero in terms of a realistic effect size. Along come Gen Y, and we begin to see differences that are not only significant, but unprecedented. There have to be reasons for that. There has to be something going on in the world now or since the early 90s, which has given rise to these changes. And similarly with Generation Z, it further reinforces the fact that the rules of the game have changed. What is that? We don't measure that, but it's an area for enormous curiosity and intrigue and debate no doubt but there's something happening it's not random thank you very much david i would i would love to continue this i'm just aware of what time so i would like to thank you for all your insights all the grace how you have expressed them 
I mean, really caught that. But so I just like the way how, you know, how thoughtful you were when you were presented these differences. And I just love the approach that came through all your words, that we shouldn't be categorizing, we should keep up our curiosity about people. And this reinforces my view about the use of theories and, and tools, that they are just lenses for the moment that help us mm-hmm. to, you know, to read the room, to have ideas, to have hypotheses, but we need to test those hypotheses. I shouldn't have, you know, unmovable assumptions in my mind. And although sometimes I'm a, I could say that I was a skeptic around the generational differences, all the insights that you have shared with me are, are changing my views as well. So thank you very much again. And I'm looking forward to have another session with you, hopefully in the close future. So thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure, Zoltan, and thank you once again for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. I hope it was helpful. It's a very interesting topic, and there's many others, as you say, that we can possibly explore. So let's look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zotanchigesh.com where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.